Welcome to A New Kind of PD, Teaching Channel's podcast where we tackle challenges in education and provide ways to inspire and engage in meaningful professional development. I'm Erica Snyder, Engagement Coordinator for Teaching Channel, coming to you from our location in New York City. This week, we'll be discussing democratic teaching practices with Shanna Comer. And as always, we'll close the show with how to inspire PD about this topic in vibrant collaborative ways. Thanks for being here, and be sure to check out the episode description for links to materials related to today's show. Class is now in session. Hi, everyone, and welcome, Shanna. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to hear um, a lot lot more about democratic teaching practices and and what your experience with that is. Um, Before we do, can you tell us a bit of your background and where you come from and and what you're doing now? Sure. I originally am a native New Yorker. Um, I spent nine years as an educator with the New York City Department of Education. I actually came to teaching through uh, an alternative pathways program, the New York City Teaching Fellows. And after completing that program, I taught science in grades 6 through 12. I started my teaching career in high school. uh, And after being in high school for four years, I decided to move down to middle school because I felt I could have uh, a greater impact working with younger students. And I became the founding teacher at a middle school called Baychester Middle School, which is located in the Bronx. And uh, as a member there, I taught science to sixth grade for four years, as well as being the science department coordinator. I was also the founder and the coordinator of the after-school science and engineering club at Baychester. Uh, I left uh, Baychester last year, and currently I'm serving as an Albert Einstein Distinguished Educator Fellow at the Department of Energy uh, in Washington, D.C. So coming from a science background, people might be thinking, I thought we were talking about democratic teaching framework, and she's in science. So let's talk about it. What is it, and and what does it look like and sound like, and why would someone from the science section be talking about this? That's a great question. So before I dive into what democratic teaching is and what it looks like in a STEM classroom, I would like just really kind of background about my own personal teaching philosophy, which kind of developed over the course of my teaching career. I really think that the foundation of good teaching comes from first connecting with your students, and then once you're connected with the students, you can then engage them uh, by bringing in things that are relevant to them, making a way to connect their lives to whatever it is that you're teaching. Uh, And once you've done that, then you can go ahead and deliver instruction. So without that initial connection with the students, and that really is based in really having some understanding of who they are, what they're about, what's important to them, what their lives are like, uh, then you can figure out what you need to do in order to engage them. And it's only, in my opinion, through that that you can then you know, deliver whatever content that you have uh, to give them. And so really approaching it kind of with that mindset, democratic teaching actually fits in very well with that whole idea. And I like to think of democratic teaching more as a mindset rather than just as, uh, you know, techniques or uh, just simply different tricks that you can use in the classroom is really a way of thinking uh, and really grounded in the mindset of the classroom as a community where as a teacher you're part of that community but students are part of the community as well. Uh, and thinking in this way it can really help uh, to empower students if they're, you know, everyone's kind of bought into this idea of community. Uh, students are really empowered because in this community you're sharing your authority with students and students are also sharing in um, the responsibility of making the classroom a good learning environment for everyone. Uh, and in turn, that 
then will drive that engagement, which then in turn drives the learning. So there's a, a New York Times article from 2016 that really talks about uh, engagement and how important it is to engage students in order to, to get them ready to actually really be able to learn something. There's, uh, I'll be include, I've included that in some of the resources, um, a link to that article at the end uh, for the podcast for those who want to read more about that. Yeah, thank you. And it'll be in the podcast description as well. So um, what is the democratic STEM teaching framework if you've given us sort of the overview of democratic teaching in general? Right. So democratic uh, STEM teaching framework is uh, developed by Junki Basu, and uh, it is developed specifically for STEM teaching. Now this can of course be modified for other subject areas, but within the STEM field, the strand, it has three main strands. The first strand is shared and transformational authority. The second is student voice. And the third strand of democratic STEM teaching is critical STEM literacy. So uh, shared and transformational authority, that's where at, on some level you're sharing the authority that you have as a teacher with your students, which gives them that ability to feel empowered and then you're also giving them some voice. So with that empowerment comes the uh, feeling that they do have a voice in the classroom and that they feel free to uh, express their own voices. Uh, the critical STEM literacy goes again into that, it's sort of bridging that gap with the engagement and the content because they then have a, a much deeper understanding a literacy in the content area that is critical so that they're thinking about it from their own perspective through their own experiences and being able to make that connection with their own lives. And so it takes, it's not just a regurgitation or memorization of facts, they're actually really internalizing and developing a deeper understanding of uh, the subject. So what does it take for a teacher um, to, to begin implementing this type of a framework? What's required of them? So in order to develop uh, to be able to use this idea in your classroom, one of the things that's most important, I think, is to be a reflective teacher, right? So being able to really look at your own practice, look at your own beliefs, look at your own ways of viewing your students uh, so that you're able to uh, go outward, right? So before you can really do anything with the students, you have to also know what your capacity and what your capability is. The other thing that's really, really important is that you're open to feedback from students. And so that takes a certain, uh, to be in a certain place in your teaching life, to be able to really hear from your students uh, their honest feedback. And they know when you mm -hmm. are really open to hearing it and when you're not. Uh, mm -hmm. So that lesson that you thought was so amazing that you spent hours and hours on to hear from your students that it was terrible and they hated it. Like you've got to be open and ready to hear that kind of critique from your students uh, as well as being able to uh, take advice from them on what could make something better. Uh, and you, so that also leads to the next thing, which is flexibility, right? So you've got to be able to be flexible to be able to change things that maybe you thought you were going to do. Perhaps you get feedback from students and you realize, oh, you know what, I really need to change something or to do things in a different order or to take a student suggestion, which might be something that you never heard, you never thought of before and implement that in your classroom. So you really do need to have some level of flexibility. And we're going to get into some more examples, too, of what this looks like in action. But before we do, um, this might be a new concept for people. So where did you learn about democratic teaching practice and how did you get involved with this um, mind shift as you're, as you're referring to it? And I will say that uh, my thinking about teaching and thinking about my classroom in this way 
really changed my entire teaching practice. Uh, I learned about the process through a fellowship program that I was involved with called the Sci-Ed Innovators Fellowship Program. It's a one-year program. Uh, it's in New York City. and I served as a fellow for one year, and then two years I was a master fellow as well as being part of the leadership team of the organization. This uh, Sci-Ed Innovators Fellowship Program uh, was actually started by the parents of Junki Basu, who I mentioned earlier, who wrote the book about democratic science teaching. Her parents, uh, after she passed away, uh, she died of cancer at a very young age in her 30s, and her parents started a foundation, and through this foundation they created this fellowship program to help to disseminate her ideas about democratic teaching to empower students uh, to a larger community. So um, through this fellowship program, you go through a whole year. It uh, lasts for one full school year. It meets uh, one full day, uh, once per month and you go through two design cycles. So one of the other unique things about this program, in addition to uh, just thinking about STEM teaching from this lens of, of democratic teaching, you also are looking at your classroom through a design framework. So it uses a modified form of uh, ideas, design thinking for educators, and you go through two design cycles where you uh, look at your classroom using low inference observations, you identify things that are happening in your classroom, and you choose something that you would like to address. That helps you then to define a pro what's called a problem of practice, and then you go into development uh, of a solution, you test out that solution in your classroom, and then reporting back to the group. So that happens twice during this year-long professional development, and that was really my introduction to uh, democratic STEM teaching. Love that design thinking for educators resource too, so that'll be in um, a link as well on the episode description. Um, and Teaching Channel talks a lot about our problems of practice, so love that that's included as well. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what this looks like. How, um, you know, what are some examples of democratic practices in action? Um, what does that look like from the student point of view? So uh, I can point to a number of several examples that I used in my classroom. One was uh, my project with the Syed Innovators. So uh, there, it was called the Norms Project. That was a year where we had a particularly challenging sixth grade class. Uh, with a lot of behavior uh, issues happening throughout the sixth grade in all classrooms. And there were some particular students who were um, really more problematic than others. And in trying to think about ways to deal with that, so to cut down on the amount of distraction that was happening during instruction, um, I decided to help, uh, have the students come up with the norms or the class rules uh, for our classroom. And what I did was I had all of the students in all of my classes write down what they felt was important for them to have in the classroom for them to be able to learn. Um, what types of behaviors uh, do they think were necessary or what the environment would need to be like. So students came up with lists of norms that they would have like to see happening in the classroom. From all of my classes, I narrowed it down uh, to a list of, of the top 10. I then sorted those 10 into categories, into four general categories. I created little desk signs, and I placed a sign with the norms on each of the students' desks. The students also signed a contract that they agreed to uh, those norms. 
And then what we did was we created a tracking system. So the students would uh, track, one student was responsible for tracking the norms for the class. And so we had sort of a, um, it was really self-reporting, so if someone did something uh, that was on the, the list of norms, then there would be a student would say, would give them a, what was called a norm check. And the monitor for that particular class would then tally it on, the, on a sheet. And we set aside time uh, once a week at the beginning of the week in each class to discuss what had been happening with the norms and talking about specific uh, students who might have gotten a number of norm checks and talking about what happened, why they were happening, and talking with each other really about what some of the solutions would be for that particular person. So the students would be giving advice uh, to each other about how to deal with things that were happening in the classroom. And that was what that was one uh, that project lasted for the second half of an entire school year. And what was the reaction from the students like? Well, I did survey the students at the end of the project to find out how they felt about it. And it was most, for the most part, pretty positive. Now, there were always, you know, like one uh, extreme student who, there one student I remember who wouldn't sign the contract. Uh, and then, so there were some, you know, little things like that that would need to be addressed. But overall, the students really liked it. The comments that I got from students were that they liked making their own rules. They felt that it was more fair than me just giving them uh, rules to follow. Uh, it also took away the stigma of behavior. And it just, they started to, they saw it as something, it was just a habit, like if they did something, it was really just a habit that they needed to work on and not something that was so major. Uh, they also really liked the community meetings. They liked the fact that we met and talked about things every week. And it, they also said that it helped them to take more responsibility for their actions because they were keeping track. They were the ones communicating with each other about what was happening in the classroom. Uh, and so they felt more responsible for what was going on. And, and so that, that really that idea of shared and transformational authority, right? Because now it's not just mm -hmm. me telling them what to do, it's them kind of figuring it out as a community what is acceptable and what's not acceptable in the classroom. And so what is the impact on student learning when you implement these processes in class? Yeah, so one of the one of the things that I really liked is that students felt like they had more fun, actually. It's having that structure helped them to be able to have more fun in the classroom and to be able to understand the lessons more because they were able to focus really on what was happening with instruction rather than focusing on behavior or what one person was doing or being having a lot of disruptions that were happening in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And there is actually uh, on this, the video, the SIAD Innovators website, there is an actual video that talks a little bit more in detail about this particular project, which you can also uh, share in the resources. Great. So then another element of the democratic um, process in class is, is talking about cogens. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and, and what that looked like in your classroom? Or what is it first yes, and what does it look like in your classroom? So Dr. Chris Emden, who is uh, at Teachers College, was one of the presenters at the, when I was in the Science Innovators Fellowship, and he spoke about this thing called cogens. It's part of his method of reality pedagogy. So you can look that up. There's uh, lots of information about that. Um, 
what Cogent stands for is cogenerative dialogue. And the idea is that it's designed to engage small groups of students in uh, what's really a meaningful, action-oriented conversation about how class is going. And the structure that he's defined, Dr. Emden, is that you would have four students representing disparate groups in your classroom. You choose a predetermined and consistent time to meet. Um, and then as a group, you meet and identify one thing that you can change in the classroom. And then the next time that you meet as a class, you change that. And so you would meet three times with the same group. And then each fourth meeting, you would have one person opt out. And the person who opts out chooses someone to come in uh, to take their place in the next three meetings. And so that's the, the structure that Dr. Emden has defined. And then in my classroom, uh, while I did do the, that traditional, what I'll call a traditional structure of cogents one year, the first year that I started it, I started a little bit smaller, I would say, because I, I did something called, and I called it science captains. So rather than choosing students from disparate groups, I actually uh, chose the top two students in each of my classes. And that would then change every quarter because the students' grades would change and who would be the person uh, at the top two spot spots would shift. Uh, and so I did meet with those students once a week. We met at lunchtime. Uh, I would bring snacks. Uh, so just to make it really fun and, and really community-oriented, we would have snacks. I would give, uh, we started off uh, each time, each uh, session, each group with uh, norms. So we created our own norms as a group of how we were going to work together. Uh, I used a hopes and dreams protocol, which is something where, you know, they were able to explore what they hoped would happen as being part of this group and what they feared would happen as being part of the group just to kind of tease out how they felt and how they thought their peers would respond to them sort of being selected for this type of thing. Uh, and then we worked through that and used that information to come up with how we would operate and work together as a group. Uh, we talked about different things from uh, what would happen in the classroom in terms of actual instruction, how labs were designed, how worksheets were designed. Uh, we talked about behaviors that were happening in the classroom that were distracting from learning. So it kind of ran the gamut of the things that we addressed. And I would um, post what I would call a captain's log, kind of like Star Trek. Uh, and I would uh, make a sign and post it on a bulletin board in the classroom each after each meeting so that everybody would know what it is that we were talking about in these meetings and what really was what came out of it. Uh, and then the second year that I did, I used the traditional model of cogents where I met with the four students and then I you know, swapped them out after uh, every third meeting. So I did a much more traditional, it was much more of a cross-section of students. And again, the same types of things, uh, getting feedback on students for things that we were doing in class, both related to content and to what was happening in the class. So um, I had this, one of the things that we worked on specifically was uh, concept mapping. And so I used a lot of concept mapping in my classroom. Students were struggling with it. And so the things that we came up with as a, as a group was to um, create model concept maps to show, to give to the rest of the class. And they were actually the, the students who created those models. And those were the models that we used throughout all the classes. So it gives the students an opportunity to see that um, 
the things that they're suggesting and their feedback that they're giving is actually something that's being implemented in the classroom. And it also gives the rest of the students the knowledge that, yes, I do listen as a teacher. It's not just what I say, it's what you say because we're a community and we're doing this together. So that was, um, it was a really positive uh, aspect of the classroom and it really helped students to just feel really connected to both what we were doing in class and also connected as a community. So can you tell me a little bit about um, how this process extended beyond your classroom walls, like in including a larger community? So one of the um, activities that uh, I produced in the school is something called Family Science Day. This was an opportunity for students to get involved with planning and executing a science event that was open to the community and open to um, the students and their families. Uh, so what I would I did was all completely voluntary. Students volunteered to be part of the process. We met after school on Fridays. The students met as a team. Um, I broke them up into individual groups based on their choices of what experiments they wanted to work on. So the, the format changed from one year to another for Family Science Day, but there was always some component where there were some activities that were going on, uh, and the students would be the ones to choose which activities um, they wanted to, to have presented at Family Science Day. So they developed the list of materials, they developed the procedure, um, they also served on the day of, they served different roles, so they were working in the individual classrooms where the activities were happening, they were directing uh, traffic for people to help them figure out where they needed to go because there were multiple activities going on uh, at different times, so they were monitoring that, they were directing traffic, they helped with advertising, they created posters to display around the school, so they were really involved with the, pro with the whole project from start to finish. Um, and then they, at the, the day of, they're invited to uh, come with their families. The students who were not in roles could then participate in activities. And it was also open to the entire school to come with their families to engage in some science activities. So it was parents and students, families together doing science. And it was really wonderful. The students also, whoever was, uh, had presented previously at other um, science fairs, like expos and um, science events, if they had posters, there was also a poster session. So students were able to uh, present their work that they'd done either in after school or during class. They were able to present their posters, uh, sort of like a scientific poster session where people would rotate through in shifts and the students would explain their work and what they had done in their different projects. So it was just a way to engage uh, students from different grades, uh, students throughout the entire school to get families involved in doing science and to get also a sense of what's ha what happens, what their students are doing during the school day. So for people who are listening that might want to investigate this a little bit more or start thinking about how to make a mind shift in their own classrooms, um, where would you recommend they get started? So in the resources, uh, which will be shared, there are there's a link to the SIET Innovators website, as well as the Design Thinking for Educators website. I've also uh, included the citation for and link for the book that I talked about, uh, Junki Basu's book on democratic uh, STEM teaching. 
uh, as well as a citation for Dr. Emden's latest book, which goes into more detail um, about cogens and how to use those. There are some practicalities, of course, because teachers are really busy. Um, and one of the most important things, I think, is to be able to work within the constraints of your school setting and your school structure. So every school is different, every principal is different, every teacher has a different level of autonomy in their classroom, and it really, you need to work within the constraints of uh, what you can do in your school. Uh, and if you need to, talk with your administrators about what you're doing because maybe the, it might take you a little longer if you're going to have a community meeting and so you have an administrator who walks into your classroom. If it's something that might be problematic, you might they should already have an idea of what's happening before they walk in. Right? So these are things that um, if you need to talk with your administration about and keep that conversation focused on how what you're doing is going to benefit students and how it's going to increase learning because at the end of the day that's really the objective. Um, and the next thing I would say is to take an objective look at your classroom to assess what's happening. So do a low inference observation or maybe even have another teacher or someone else come in and do a low inference observation while you're teaching, really without making any statements about what's causing anything, just cataloging what's happening in the classroom. And then ask your students, what are those causes for the things that may have been observed? So this is really a critical step. Uh, often as teachers we want to jump to solutions and uh, in this process it's really important to take a step back and really look at what's happening and then really get more involvement from students and other stakeholders about the causes rather than just saying this is why this is happening, really understanding from the other pr perspective what's happening in your classroom. And once well, you've done that grant Yeah, I would say we would encourage, you know, take a video of it. Obviously we're teaching channel, right? And we support video and if you can't have someone come in to look at that, watch your watch your classroom in action video it yourself and see what you see, um, and have the students even watch the video back with you. It would be another way to to go about that very critical step. Yeah, that's excellent excellent advice. Uh, once you've laid that groundwork, really the next step would be deciding what it is that you want to address. Uh, you can't address every single thing that you see, so I would say pick one, um, and then you have to figure out when you're going to address it and how. And so in order to select something, I would say if it's your first time really kind of diving into this kind of work, I would start small the first time. There are many different ways that you can start small by giving students a little bit more voice in the classroom, sharing a little bit of the authority with the students in the classroom, making connections uh, to your content with students uh, in a way that engages them uh, by bringing in what they already know and what their experiences are. So there are lots of ways that you can do that. Uh, you can do it during class, you can do it before school, you can do it after school, you can do it during lunchtime. It just really depends on what it is that you want to address and what the structure is in your school and what opportunities you have. And so one really good example of a very simple way as a science teacher is giving students time to play. So when you have um, and this is something that I actually ended up incorporating into my regular teaching practice is when I had a lab, there is a section of time that is specifically given to students to just play with the materials. And so typically you've got a lab, you put things on the student's desk and don't touch anything until we tell you to and just follow the steps. But giving students an opportunity, as long as you know, obviously they're being safe, giving them an opportunity to kind of just play with things and see what's in the basket uh, is just a really simple example of a way that you can start to give students a little bit more um, authority in the classroom. 
Uh, the next thing is really important is making whatever you decide to do that it should be part of your planning. So not something that you're doing in addition to your planning, it's part of your planning. Really thinking about how whatever it is that you've decided to do will affect what the content that you're teaching, uh, how it is that you're going to get feedback from students, both on the process of the changes that you're making in the process by incorporating these democratic uh, techniques, and also on the product itself. So whatever product they're producing for you um, in your classroom, how is this impacted by allowing them to have more voice, allowing them to have uh, more authority. So what, what is the impact on, on, the, pro on uh, the products that they're producing? And find out how the students feel about these changes and whether they feel like the changes are making a difference in their own learning, in their, from their perspective. The other thing with feedback is to make sure that you make it visible uh, because students need to see that their feedback makes a difference. So if you're asking them to give you advice or give you feedback on things and they don't see that it's making a change or they don't see any evidence that you're incorporating or listening to them, then they won't feel like it's meaningful. So whether you choose to have a display of some kind, whether you share it verbally with students, you set aside some time to talk about the feedback that you received from them and how you're using that feedback some way that they can see that their feedback makes a difference in how you teach the classroom. And of course, as with everything in teaching, is making it consistent. So whatever it is that you decide to do, it should be done on a consistent basis so that it becomes just part of the routine in your classroom. And the final thing I would say that is important is to share any successes that you have with your administration with your colleagues and of course with the students because by sharing the success that really creates momentum other people will want to kind of adopt some of these things and it could become something that's really positive for the whole school rather than just in your individual classroom. I love that and making sure their voice and choice is heard and seen and also celebrated. Shannon, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking time out of your very busy schedule to talk with us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. You can follow Shanna on Twitter at Donna McBrain and check her teaching channel video on our website. It's called Applying STEM, the Brain Safety Challenge. I have thoughts or comments about this podcast. Uh, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at Snyder underscore Erica. Thanks to Paul Teske's Mad Garage Band Skills for providing our music and teaching channel staff for all your work getting a new kind of PD up and running. Thanks to all of you for listening. And if you like what you hear, head on over to iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio to subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and tell your friends about us. We'll see you back here in two weeks when we'll be discussing how to use video for instructional rounds or a blended math studio.